Taryn. Yay. Taryn is back for the third week in a row. Can everyone just honor this man? How God sees women and the beautiful news is that he sees us. Amen. Hey, everybody. So usually we like to be done by 11. I'm asking for a little bit more time today. So buy that like done chicken at Woolies. Don't cook it from scratch for your, your mother's day meal. Um, how God sees women. And tonight uh, we're going to speak very practically about how this actually works out in marriages, society, uh, church ministry. So I encourage you to come at 5 o'clock. And there's lovely treats that are part of the whole package. Um, how God sees women. What an exciting theme. The end of patriarchy <laughs> is what actually it's about. And uh, my message to you today is about wives submit. Just to let you know, next week we start a new series, which we're going to carry on for a few months. We might take a little break here or there. Going through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. We're calling it the Ways of Jesus. And I'm so pumped about that. And I, I know I've preached a lot lately, but I'm going to launch next week's series, and then I'm going to let other people preach also, I promise. So sorry that you've had to hear me so much. Okay. Wives, submit. <laughs> now, if you're single and you think, hey, I might get married one day, this is a very important message to listen to, because it gets you thinking about what marriage is and how to become a person that would be better at marriage. If you are married, you are on the edge of your seat because you know the reality of power dynamics in a relationship. And if you're raising up kids, you're thinking about how do I coach my children in this area? Um, I, I still remember hearing somebody say to my wife, we need to train our daughters to submit to their husbands one day. <laughs> I remember thinking, my goodness, you know, it's one thing me and Julie working this out in our marriage, but I've really got to get my understanding of scripture right on this. If I'm going to be teaching Ivy how to submit to her husband one day, it accelerated my interest in what the Bible really says about this. Wives submit. It occurs four times in the Bible, and uh, Jesus never says it. Jesus never says a word about um, a husband's leadership of a wife. And in four places, Paul uses the term wives submit. Wives submit. The longest passage where this happens is in Ephesians 5. I'm going to be skimming over a lot of content. Um, if you read my book, you'll get all the footnotes. And then I've got another chapter that deals with the other three places in the New Testament that speaks to this theme. But let's look at Ephesians chapter 5. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, verse 21. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I'm going to stop there. Seems simple enough. Well, actually, if you reflect on these verses, there are four different lines of interpretation. Let's call them four views. I'm going to name them the husband as decision maker, view one, the husband as tiebreaker, view two, the husband as servant of his equal, view three, and the husband as the redeemed paterfamilias. Watch the space. I'll explain it. View one, 
the husband as regular decision maker. This is Wayne Grudem's view. He is the most influential complementarian on the planet. He says that when Paul says submit to one another in verse 21, Paul does not mean that all believers should submit to all believers. Only believers should submit to those in rightful authority over them. In other words, submission flows from wife to husband, but definitely not the other way around. He says that head in the husband is the head of the wife means authority over. Paul is pressing men to take leadership of their wives and wives to accept this leadership. When it speaks about the husband laying down his life for his wife like Jesus did for the church, this means that Paul is urging a husband not merely to love his wife, but to lead his wife in a loving way. Grudem even tells us how this works out in his own marriage. He says, in every decision, whether large or small, and whether we have reached agreement or not, the responsibility to make the decision still rests with me. This makes a difference in every decision that the couple makes every day of their married life. If there is genuine male headship, there is a quiet, subtle acknowledgement that the focus of the decision-making process is the husband, not the wife. And even though there will often be much discussion and there should be much mutual respect and consideration of each other, yet ultimately the responsibility to make the decision rests with the husband. Most popular Christian books on marriage espouse this view. One says, the husband is responsible for the important decisions in the home. A responsive and receptive wife willingly surrenders her freedom for his love, adoration, protection, and provision. Another echoes the same sentiment. A man may have many bosses outside the home. But inside the home, he has the opportunity to kindly provide authority and to receive his rightful respect. View one. View two. Here we go. The husband as rare tiebreaker. Rare tiebreaker. Timothy and Kathy Keller in their best-selling book, The Meaning of Marriage, seem to offer a softer view of complementarian marriage. Contra Grudem's view, Paul frames the gender roles in marriage as an Expression of mutual submission in verse 21, which they define as, as the choice to humbly serve and please each other. Whether we are husband or wife, they say, we are not to live for ourselves but for the other. And that is the hardest yet single most important function of being a husband or a wife in a Christian marriage. So in this view, mutual submission flows both ways. In verses 22 to 24, Paul tells the wives to submit to their husbands. In the verses that follow, he tells the husbands to submit to their wives by taking the form of sacrificial love. Mutual submission aside, the killers still argue for the husband as the leader. They do this in chapter 6 of their best-selling book, The Meaning of Marriage. But now they shift from the language of a husband in mutual submission with his wife to that of a husband who submits to the role of servant leader. I need to note in passing that now we have a questionable use of the word submit because it means something very different than it did in the idea of mutual submission. Submitting to a person is very different than submitting to a role to lead that person. Thankfully, the killers offer a much softer kind of leadership than has been the understanding of a wife's submission in centuries past. They say where both parties cannot agree, but some kind of decision must be made, the husband has the right to cast the deciding vote and thus take the greater responsibility for the decision. In other words, only where there is a disagreement and not in everyday decision-making should the husband make a decision. This is the tiebreaker model. Now, as a long-time soft complementarian, I and many other teachers in the same camp have applied the softer teaching. 
for example, my, my friend Alan Frau, an influential complementarian pastor in Southern California. I'm listening to a podcast, and he says, I've been married for 25 years, and in that time, only five times, my wife has said to me, we can't agree, you're the leader, go and seek God. Now, in my own marriage, years would pass by without the need for me to use my tie-breaking authority, because Julie and I always managed to reach consensus. But see, this means that in our lived experience, my so-called leadership of Julie and her so-called submission to my leadership practically didn't exist. (laughs) And uh, that's why I actually didn't do much work on needing to upgrade it. (laughs) So we were functional egalitarians disguised under the tie-breaking authority model. In fact, in my own study of Scripture, I first changed my mind about women in leadership. I was sure that Ephesians 5 taught a very soft form of a, of a husband's leadership of a wife. And only when I actually got round to writing my book, when I wanted to persuade my readers that they should let women lead in church, but in marriages they should practice very soft uh, you know, um, submission. And I actually researched the passage. I, I, I changed my mind. And when you sit in a coffee shop day after day and you actually stop and think about what the Bible says and you think about how it's all working out in practice, I began to have serious doubts about the tie-breaking model. I mean, for one, this tie-breaking model is a very recent construct. I mean, Grudem says, I do not agree with those who say that male headship only makes a difference one in ten years or when a husband and a wife can't reach agreement. So this soft complementarianism in some ways is a recent fudge, (laughs) and it's very convenient to hide under, but you can't say it's the historic view. It's a very recent construct. If you really want to live your life by a recent construct and call yourself, you know, this is the biblical view. But it was the question, why should a wife submit, that really got me thinking. And I don't think it's wrong when you read ethics in the scripture, and then you go, okay, I trust God, this must be good. I'm just curious what the benefit of, you know, this is. So I asked the question, okay, wives need to submit to our husband's leadership, but why? And then I looked at church history, and the number one answer was this. They're inferior at making decisions. (laughs) But since the 1960s, those ideas have been abandoned in the culture and the church. We all know many women. I'm married to one of them who is more intelligent and decisive than her husband. So it can't be that they're inferior at making decisions. But now you've got the soft complement, you've got complementarians coming up with new reasons in church history for why it's important that a wife submits to a husband. And inter Wayne Grudem, it reflects the, the son's subordination to the father. It reflects the son's subordination to the father. I'm talking about the Trinity here. So a wife's submission to a husband's authority is meant to mirror Christ's relationship to the father. Kathy Keller in the book Meaning Marriage admits that when she first encountered these ideas of headship and submission in marriage, she was intellectually and morally traumatized. But then she said she saw in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3 that the relationship of the father and the son is a pattern for the relationship of husband to wife in which she says, male and female are invited to mirror and reflect loving authority and loving submission. And she realized she could play the Jesus role. So persuasive was this that when my wife needed to write a paper for other pastor's wives who were wondering why they were second fiddle, not only at church but at home too, she leaned especially on this. Guys, we get to reflect the Trinity to the world. One problem. 
It's a complete misinterpretation of 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3. There is no scripture, certainly not that scripture, telling wives to model their submission to a husband on the son's submission to the father. The only place where Jesus does apply the Trinitarian relationships to the way we live, in John 17, he prays that we would be one as he and the Father is one. So when he says, if we're going to mirror the Trinity in the world, it will not be through our chains of command. It will be through our bonds of love. Can't be that. John Piper comes in strong, even writes a book about the third, the third possibility. Why should wives submit? Because it depicts to the watching world the church's submission to Christ. So you've got a non-Christian who's watching this Christian marriage across the road, and you've got this husband who's sacrificially leading his wife. She submits to his leadership, and the, the, and the non-Christian goes, wow, beautiful. I get it. That's a picture of Christ and the church. Now, that preaches nicely, but take a closer look. It doesn't work with you too. <laughs> Jesus is Lord of the church, not just tiebreaker of the church. If Jesus is our Lord, we sign up for his daily leadership, not some soft collaborative decision-making where only every now and then, when we can't agree, we allow Jesus to play his trump card. If we're going to take that as a reason, then the husband must be the daily decision-maker. Now, most pastors... Don't use any of those reasons. Pastors love to uh, say pragmatic things in churches so that congregants nod their head. Yeah, we've got a wise pastor here. The most common reason given in the pulpit, hey, the buck has got to stop with someone. They'll say something like, anything with two heads is a monster. It's important to know where the buck stops with. Love and respect, the most uh, famous book, uh, Christian marriage, says to set up a marriage with two equals at the head is to set it up for failure. That is one of the big reasons that people are divorcing right and left today. Everyone in the church nods. But where, I wondered, is the evidence for this outlandish claim? Now, I hope to read further studies on this, but I came across this book, The Great Sex Rescue. And it, it, it's, it publishes the results of a recent study of 20,000 married and divorced church-going Christian women. And it comes to the opposite conclusion. Authors write, based on their uh, research, couples where one spouse makes the decisions, even if they talk their decisions over with their spouse first and seek their input, are 7.4 times more likely to be divorced than couples who share decision-making power. Though Christian couples believe husbands have decision-making authority, this is the other thing they find, this belief did not cause harm to the couple until it was put into practice. So what this means is that 50 to 60% of Christians go, yeah, no, we believe uh, what the Bible says, no, wives need to submit to the husband's leadership. We believe that. But only 20% of them practice it. Because you know in your bones that can't be right. But you believe it. So now you've got a situation, you've got this belief, but you're living out of alignment with it. What's a pastor meant to do? He's meant to pound the pulpit and say, do what the Bible says. There's just too much equality here. But if the pastor does that and the congregant takes that advice, you jeopardize their marriage. This is what the stats say. What are pastors meant to do? I'll tell you what we're meant to do. We're meant to go back to the Bible and take a closer look. When women don't feel hurt, the author of this book says, and instead feel as if their opinions are not important as their husbands, their marriages are 26 times more likely to end in divorce. Now she's leaning on non-Christian research uh, 
on this matter. Even if he consults his wife in marriages where a husband has decision-making power, his opinions by definition matter more than hers. And when women feel their opinions are not given the same weight as their husbands, marriages are more likely to crumble. Conversely, there are glaring benefits to mutuality in marriage. When couples make decisions together, wives are four times more likely to rate themselves among the 20% of uh, of happy marriages than amongst the 20% of least happy. And uh, children, block your ears. Wives are 67 times more likely to climax during lovemaking. Yay for mutuality, say all the women. These statistics verify that marriages and sex lives at fair best are those that decide to work things out together and when they disagree to give the matter the time and care it needs to come to an agreement. See, I can appreciate how in a leadership team of, say, 10 people, we need the buck to stop somewhere. The leader may need to act as tiebreaker on occasion. But let's be careful of importing organizational decision-making dynamics into a marriage, which is only two people far more relational and functional pledged to a soul-level union. All that said, if God points at something and he says, that's a, that's, he points at a pole, he says, that's a balloon, we agree, that's a balloon. So does God, despite all of this data, still say no? Wives, submit. And uh, we have to look at the scriptures. But I'm just being honest with you. Why? I thought I might need to look at this more carefully. I'm so glad I did. Because the next two views, in my view, are much more compelling in terms of exegesis of the passage. So view three, the husband as servant of his equal. The husband as servant of his equal. Verse 21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What Paul is doing here is linguistically, that's language, and socially revolutionary. Usually, the word submit means to comply with authority. But by Paul saying, which means it flows one way, from an inferior to a superior. But when Paul says we need to do it to each other, he's not making a metaphoric and he's saying, Humbly serve and please each other. Treat each other as if this person is your authority. Lay down your life in their service. He is now taking this term and he is turning it into two-way submission. So there's two definitions of submit. The first one is to comply with authority. The other one is to humbly serve and please. Question is, which one is Paul using here? Grudem and Kevin DeYoung may insist that it's one-way authority Yet every single reference to one another, that phrase in the book of Ephesians and the rest of the New Testament can be shown to always be reciprocal. So he's referring to the second kind of submission. The question now is, what do wives do? Wives, it says, yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. So the argument is, okay, so maybe maybe there's mutual submission, you know, in... in, um, in Christian relationships between the husband and the wife. But this verse then tells us that wives especially need to submit to husbands. And they then give submission a new meaning. So in verse 21, it means to humbly serve and please. Uh, But in verse 22, it means to submit to authority. There's one problem. This is one sentence. And what authors would often do is if you're using the exact same idea You use ellipsis. You literally leave a word out because you're referencing the word before. It says literally, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, notice the missing word, yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. It's one sentence. In other words, it's using the exact same word 
You can't change its meaning if it's exactly the same word. This is why translations are so crucial. Open up the ESV. There's a fat heading in there. It's not in the original. Wives and husbands. So verse 21, submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. New heading. Wives and husbands. New sentence. Wives submit to husbands. Can you see how misleading that is? It's the exact same word. And then verse 24 is the same sentence. It uses the word submission again, but it can't be a new meaning in the very same sentence. So in other words, where it says is the church submits to Christ in everything, so our wives should submit to their husbands in everything. It's the same meaning. In other words, it means as the church humbly serves and pleases Christ in everything, so wives should humbly serve and please their husbands in everything. But notice the word head. That's actually where we just assume this is clearly speaking about a husband's authority. In the English language, a head of a company, it, it, it's got that idea of authority. My head is the executive function of my body. There's a brain. My head is directing my body. That's strong thinking in the English language. question is, what about the Greek language in the first century? This is an enormous area of debate. For the husband is the head of the wife. The Greek is kephali or kephale, kephali. <laughs> There is an enormous body of scholarship on this word. I've read, it, I've read parts of a tomb written by Anthony Thistleton on 1 Corinthians. He's got this immense body of researchers. He writes the best ever. I don't know, in 100 years, somebody's going to write a commentary that good on 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3, it says that the, the man is the kephale of the woman. What does that mean? His team of researchers say the most painful part of researching for this commentary was that word kafale. So what you have to do is you have to read the very best commentary writers on 1 Corinthians. They all know if you're going to write a commentary, you've got to do hard yards on that. And what you find in the top, in most of the top rated, most scholarly team, you know, created commentaries on 1 Corinthians, none of them say that it means authority over. It means something else. Now, I've wasted, not wasted, I've devoted a lot of my life to trying to make sense of kafali. I've written a little, uh, it's, it's an appendix in my book, but for those of you who can't afford my book, not a problem, I've given it to you as a PDF for free. If you go to bit.ly, you know, www.bit.ly, short, bit.ly forward slash, here's the, the code, remember it, you can memorize it now, 386-KMO, capital A, so bit.ly forward slash, 386-KMO, capital A. For four pages with a ton of footnotes, I'll give you my understanding of why kafale only very seldom meant authority in the first century. It came to mean that more as centuries passed on and why uh, we've got good reason to believe that Paul especially employed it to mean to be the source of, to be a, a source of provision, a source of life. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church's body, of which he is the savior. Now, you have to look at each use of the word kafale in context. It might mean one thing in one place, another thing in another place. The question is, in this context, uh, does it mean authority or does it mean source? Well, this is the best part. 
the most important clue is that he uses it as part of a knowledge, an, an analogy for a marriage, and he uses a brand new literary invention in which the husband is the head of the wife who is his body. Does Paul give us any clues as to what he means then by head of the wife who is his body? Yes, he does. And unfortunately, English translations obscure it. But the actual Greek sentence structure in verse 23 is husband, head of the wife, Christ, head of the church, he, savior of the body. Husband, head of the wife, Christ, head of the church, he, savior of the body. In Greek, we see that Paul means by head. What, what, what he means by head. These three parallel phrases highlight that Paul uses head synonymously with savior. So sure, theologically speaking, Christ is both Savior, when we think about him as a Savior, it speaks about what he gives us in service and care. And of course, we know from the rest of the Bible that he is Lord. This is what he rightfully demands from us. But Paul packs into this analogy only the meaning of Christ as Savior of his body. And if we have any doubts that a husband's headship here means a husband's care and service, the idea of care and service is sustained in the verses that follow. Again, it's a little hidden by the way Paul, who is a genius thinker, very creative at time, weaves in yet another metaphor of Christ's marriage to his bride, the church. So let me read verse 24 to 29 to you. And tell me if you can hear the idea of a husband having authority over his wife or a husband caring for his wife. Here we go. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Her, again, I was referring to his body. To make her, referring to his body, holy cleansing, Uh, holy, cleansing her, referring to his body, by the washing with water through the word, and to present her, his body, to himself as a radiant church, without stain or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves his body. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Did you see that? Throughout this passage, Paul emphasizes not authority, but service and care. So that even if kafali in some, sorry, some places can mean authority over, in this context, he's clearly employing its idea as source. When he speaks about the husband as head of the wife, he does not imply that husbands should assert their authority over their wives, but rather that husbands should serve their wives as any of us would serve our own bodies. So, so far, there are three layers to Paul's quite complicated teaching here. There's head, body, there's husband, wife, there's Christ, church. Paul adds in a fourth layer, Adam, Eve. Gets to verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. He goes back to Genesis chapter 2, goes back to the garden. You see, this idea of a head and a body is not meant to be a person you know, with a scepter on a throne telling uh, his subjects what to do. A head is intimately connected to a body. That's Paul's point. They are one flesh. So important we understand Genesis 2 correctly. The first talk of this series, I made the point that Genesis 2 in itself teaches a husband and a wife's equality, teaches mutuality. Let me offer one last insight based on reading Ephesians 5 as God's calling the husbands to serve and not to lead his wife. There is not a single instruction in this passage for a husband to lead his wife. And here's the game changer. Not here and not anywhere else in all of Scripture. Show me the place in the Bible where it says, hey, husbands, lead your wives. 
It just says the husband is the head of the wife. Husband is the source of the wife. And this brings us to the mighty conclusion that there might be nothing in Ephesians 5 about the husband's authority over his subordinate wife. Rather, what Paul highlights through graphic metaphors is that husbands and wives are to lovingly unite with and mutually serve and please one another. That's only the third view. My book, I'm going to spend the most time on the fourth view. The fourth view, I'll just run through hopefully quickly here, is the husband as redeemed paterfamilias. The husband has redeemed paterfamilias. View four slightly disagrees with view three, but shows that in application, it doesn't contradict view three. So the biggest mistake the killers make, the bigger, who write a whole book on Ephesians 5, the biggest mistake that Gruder makes, who writes 800 pages trying to decimate egalitarian interpretations, is that they assume that Ephesians was written to us. It wasn't written to you. It was written for you. All scripture God breathed is useful for God's people. Ephesians was written to churches in the Greco-Roman world. See, we need to realize the distance between us and these early marriages. We imagine that the married couples present in the Ephesian church were more or less like modern ones. We imagine that Paul sees us, our contemporary marriages, and therefore writes this letter to us. But no, the marriages he addresses are those in the first, those in the first century Greco-Roman world. So different from our own in that world, households did not consist of two working parents, two children, and a dog and a cat. You have to read Ephesians 5 in context and realize that it runs parallel with Paul giving counsel to husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves. In other words, he's speaking to the stratified household arrangement of the first century Greco-Roman world. He is addressing an ancient context. In that context, a household mainly consisted of a man, the paterfamilias, who ruled over his wife, his children, and sometimes his slaves. Owing to the teaching of Aristotle and Roman law, homes were hierarchically arranged. In that culture, this was the best way to be a a household. Only when the oldest man died, the rule of the house, if she was the senior most person, would be a woman, a materfamilias. Aristotle said, the rule of our household is a monarchy, the husband and father is king. This was the world that Paul was writing to. See, Paul is not creating a domestic structure in which the senior man rules everyone else any more than he creates the governmental structure in which Caesar is lord of the Roman Empire. What he does is he merely speaks to it. He tries to work the gospel into these existing social structures by finding ways to redeem them and not necessarily by trying to overthrow them. By this view, he may assume that paterfamilias is in charge, but he's certainly not prescribing it as some kind of role or status that the husband should have for all time and in all churches over their wives. Far from idealizing a a man's cultural power over a woman, he tries to redeem it with the gospel. The question then is, what if Paul climbed out of his missionary ship and went onto an island where there were egalitarian marriages, which we know only come about in the last how many years. 
See, now that I understand the distance between the ancient context and our own, I simply cannot conceive of Paul coming to the average modern marriage where husbands and wives are closer in age, both are equally exhausted because they're both working to pay for school fees, they're equally educated, they're trying to raise children, and then him saying to the couple, hey, well done for all of that partnering, keep that up. But I'd like to insist that the husband should be the leader, and you need to subordinate to him some more. I mean, how could Paul do that, especially when we read what else Paul says about authority in marriage? Coming to the end of this message, let's jump to marriage in 1 Corinthians 7, which harkens back to the Song of Songs. In the Old Testament, the longest book in the Bible about marriage is Song of Songs. It explores the inner dynamics of an affectionate, romantic, and sexual union of a couple in it. There is absolutely no sign of male-female authority submission. In romance and sex, both initiate and both yield, both give and both receive. 1 Corinthians 7 is by far Paul's longest passage on marriage. Yet in his guidance about sex, service, and separation in Christian marriage, he does not offer the slightest hint that a Christian marriage is anything but a mutual and loving partnership between equals. In fact, this is the only chapter in the Bible that explicitly uses the word authority, excusia, about the relationships in marriage. And he incidentally gives it to both the husband and the wife. So let me pull out some threads and you get a sense of Paul's vision of marriage. He says, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. That sounds fairly egalitarian. The husband should... Give his wife her conjugal rights, likewise the wife to her husband. Verse 3. Verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Verse 10. The wife should not separate from her husband, and the husband should not leave his wife. Verse 12. If any believer has a wife who is an unbeliever, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is not a believer, she should not divorce him. Sorry, he should not divorce her, and she should not divorce him. Verse 14, the unbelieving husband is made holy through his wife. The unbelieving wife is made holy through her husband. Verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not bound. Verse 16, wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. Verse 28, but if you, a man married, you do not sin. And if an unmarried woman marries, she does not sin. Verse 32, the unmarried man is concerned with the affairs of the Lord. An unmarried woman is concerned with the affairs of the Lord. And verse 33, the married man is concerned about the affairs of this world and how to please his wife. The married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world and how she can please her husband. What do we learn about God's plan for marriage in 1 Corinthians 7? I'll lean on one of the best uh, exegetes in the UK, Richard Hayes. There it goes. Paul's answers must have struck first century hearers as extraordinary. The marriage partners are neither set in a hierarchical relationship with one over the other, nor set apart as autonomous units, each doing what he or she pleases. Instead, the relationship of marriage is one of mutual submission, each partner belonging to the other. I still remember when I first started teaching on finding a partner in marriage. Um, my, I thought, you know, what, what does the Bible teach? Well, it must teach that you've got to let God choose your partner for you. That was my main teaching. Let God choose your partner for you. And then one day I'm reading 1 Corinthians 7, and it says, um, if she wants to marry, she may, but she must choose well. She must choose a believer. I realize I find the only verse that speaks to the subject in the New Testament, 
And it says, actually, no, don't let God choose for you. You choose, and please choose well. It was revolutionary to, to find the one verse that actually speaks to this important subject of choosing a partner. You know, when I was just a few weeks ago, after I've written my book, I'm reading 1 Corinthians 7 again, and I realized the same thing in verse 5. It says you're trying to make a decision, this couple, about you know, when you should fast, when you should pray, when you should have sex. And Paul says, you know, let the husband decide. Oh, no, no, I'm joking. Paul says, talk about it, and if you can't agree, let the husband decide. I'm still joking. It says in verse 5, make this decision by mutual consent. And right then I realized the only verse in the New Testament that specifically guides a married couple how to make decisions that pertain to both is through mutual consent. One last question and then we're done. Are wives and husbands to treat each other in the same way? Are wives and husbands to treat each other in the same way? I mean, does this mean that Paul is telling husbands and wives to treat each other in exactly the same way? I'm going to go with yes and no. Yes, because Luke and Jen, you guys are called to submit to one another. Both of you. Jen, you submit to Luke. Luke, you submit to Jen. But I'm also going to go with no. You see, if the husbands in Paul's time were anything like so many husbands I know of today, including me, then they were on average less likely than the wives to lay down their lives sacrificially for their spouses. For this reason, Paul C. feels it's sufficient to merely tell the wives to submit, uh, in other words, humbly serve and please their husbands, just in two verses, but then proceeds to chip away at the husband's selfishness by saying three times as much to him, pressing him to sacrifice like Christ. The shoe certainly fits me in my own marriage. It's not Julie, but I who have needed the most prodding from Scripture and the ongoing transforming of the, the Spirit to sacrificially and humbly serve and please my spouse. And let's not forget there is also a pattern here. There's a pattern here. And let's go to Adam in the garden. Adam lays down his life and his side is opened up and out comes the woman. He wakes up. He has given up something already. And he sees the woman and he delights in her. But he sacrificed first. And this points us beautifully to the, the gospel. The shape of the gospel is Genesis chapter 2. Because we're told in John 19 that while Jesus was on the cross... It uses the exact same Greek wording as the Greek translation, the ancient Greek translation of Genesis 2. From his side flowed blood and water. Jesus is in the tomb. He's sleeping in the garden. He comes to the first word Adam says that when he sees Eve is, I tell you, you are woman. Or like, wow, man. What's the first word Jesus says? Woman. Mary Magdalene is not only being honored as a woman, being dignity, given dignity and the first significant you know, ministry mandate, go and tell the brothers I'm alive. This is a picture of Jesus bringing the church into existence through his first sacrifice. The church will sacrifice for Jesus, oh, but he sacrificed for us first. 
I suspect that my friend Andrew Bartlett is correct to conclude. Paul is calling the husband to go first in self-sacrifice. While this is not different in kind from the wife's Christian obligation of unselfish love for her husband, it is an intensification of the husband's responsibility to love. Dudes who are married, dudes who are going to be married, I'm eyeballing you, you go first in sacrifice. You go first in sacrifice. Let's pray. I mean, it's quite amazing doing this sermon, Jesus, because I'm looking at people that are, that are your, part of your bride. <laughs> the reason we're here on this sunny Sunday morning is because we've been called, because we've encountered the risen Lord. We exist as followers of Jesus because we were taken from your side. Thank you, Jesus, for your love. Thank you for your sacrifice. We lay down our lives. We receive your love. We love you back. We pray this all in Jesus' name.